Hey, you're listening to the Sub Club Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing subscription app businesses. We'll share insider secrets from the top subscription apps on the app stores. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Sub Club Podcast. I'm David Barnard, and joining me is my colleague, Jacob Eiding. Hello. And today our guest is Nico Wittenborn. Hey, Nico. Hey, David. Hi, Jacob. <laughs> Nico is a founder of Adjacent, a new fund focused on mobile-first subscription companies. Prior to that, Nico worked at Point Nine Capital in Berlin and Insight Partners in New York City. His investments include Calm, Revolut, Aura, Revenue Cat, and Reflectly. Oh man, you know the guys at Revenue Cat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I, so I don't know. I don't. I'm, they're not doing that well. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> Off to a good start, everybody. It's good. No, we need it. We need some cold water once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> give, me, give it to me straight. This should be like an open intervention. Uh, David's always joking and calling me boss man, but finally I've got somebody that I can call boss man on here. So just yeah. let me have it, there Nico. You go. No. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to talk. I think I'll give, I'll give like a more, a little more color to the intro, which is Nico just joined, just started working with us as an investor at Revenue Cat. I met Nico, I don't know what, a few months ago yes. after you just pestered me and pestered me until I would <laughs> take your call. But, but, it, but, but I, I was impressed because I think this industry of consumer first subscriptions, is finally getting some attention. Uh, especially from like capital sources like venture, but, but also just not just, not just, it's not entering just because investors are interested now. It's actually interesting because the business model is maturing. The markets are maturing. And I think you're one of the early investors to see that, which is a, kind of a shared philosophy with us. So like, yeah. how did, how did you, like, how did you end up sort of in this niche? Like what drew you to subscriptions? Um, yeah, it's an interesting um, story if I may say so myself. But um, it really starts in high school um, when I was just fascinated by the iPhone, couldn't afford one, ended up buying it and then just kind of following the evolution of the App Store ecosystem. And also at the same time, being very lucky and um, falling into an opportunity to, while I was studying, um, do an internship with a small fund that was really the first institutional fund coming out of Berlin. And... What they focused on, the name is Point Nine Capital, and what they focused on um, was really SaaS investing. So we did a lot of investing in companies that were you know, high margin, recurring revenues, and had a global scale, and, but selling enterprise software to two companies. And at one point, I, I started combining kind of my passion for mobile and, and, and just personal experience with just being, a, I guess, early user of all of these apps with this business model of subscriptions um, that we were really deep into it with Point Nine, and that that was kind of around the same time that Spotify and, and Netflix, Amazon Prime, and so on, were were educating people that it was okay to pay a subscription fee for for a digital product. And so, I I really got interested when I saw the likes of you know Headspace and Calm and, and some others um, start using that business model and and really bringing this kind of SaaS business model of of high margin recurring revenues. Um, at a global scale to the consumer, um, to the consumer market. Um, and so I was very lucky to invest in, uh, with, with Point9 and, and the team there into Revolut um, towards the end of my time there. And then with, with Insight in, into Calm and a couple of others. And I think that experience of just being 
in, in that you know, first or second wave of consumer companies and seeing them actually do very well. I think that just you know, coined my or, 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 or made me more aware that, that you can build very significant businesses in, in these verticals. And I think a lot of investors just don't know that yet. Yeah. What, what do you think like when you're evaluating a company? Because I, I, I've... Yeah, I've worked with a lot of companies similar to ones you've invested in, and, I, yeah. and I'm, I, I, I do not have a magic formula for picking and like telling what's going to. And I'm, I'm sure no investor does. And and yeah. and and I would have to. My my intuition is that it's somewhat somewhat more difficult to evaluate a consumer product, even a subscription product that's going to be breakout successful versus one that may, maybe maybe isn't. What have you? I mean, you don't have to give away your secrets, right? But <laughs> how does it differ, like when you're evaluating like a high margin, like SaaS B two B SaaS company versus like somebody who's selling to end users? Yeah, so I think that the, there's certainly big differences, right, between SaaS and, and consumer. And um, one of the biggest is that the SaaS business is typically a lot stickier. So like you keep your customers around, you have relatively mm. high retention. And for consumer, because you're monetizing on on the consumer level, and it's you know everyday people then you you just you certainly see a lot higher churn and so i think the kind of core of my investment thesis is to invest in products that show um a very long-term sticky cohort of users that you can eventually stack right and so and i think the insight that i had after a while of working with these companies was even though your one churn can be relatively high as long as you have a very long-term sticky cohort, even if it's just a third of the users or 40% of the users, if they end up getting to a habitual use that in the end of the day doesn't churn anymore, you can start stacking those cohorts and build a very significant business, right? And so I think while a lot of investors look at these companies and see, okay, your one churn is 50%, that means after year two, nobody's there anymore. Mm -hmm. I look at it as, okay, your one churn is 50%, but then what's that stable cohort in year two, three, four that just really sticks around and, and, and stays flat forever. And and so that's, I think, the, the kind of key insight and the key thing that I'm trying to look for even at an early stage is, do you have a really engaged user cohort that, that you know, has the characteristics of one that would stick around for a very long time? One of the really interesting things to me is that in the consumer space, it's it's actually a lot harder to figure out like what really is sticky. Like I would have never guessed that light tricks could build a billion dollar business on like selfie editing and things like that. So it's, it's, it's interesting. And I mean, I guess it's not that hard to predict. I mean, you, you need to look at like what people are actually using on their devices, especially in mass. Also, also generational questions, right? Like, <laughs> like we're just not going to be cited to that stuff as well. No, but I think it's an important point. Like one, okay, how do you define sticky? And I think it's different for every category. But at the end of the day, it always comes down to engagement. Right? So how, how, how do people use the product? Not like day 30, but month six, seven, eight. Right? Like once it's not anymore the app that you download and you play with, but is there still a use case six months out, 12 months out, 18 months out? And I think that's, that's, you can always see that in engagement. You always have a really good idea of like, you know, will that customer still be around in a few months from now? And the answer is yes, if they're very active towards the outer months of the cohort, oftentimes. Um, and the second part to it is, and that's maybe also an interesting learning is, and I think this was true for Revolut, this was true for Calm, it's true for some of the others that, that I've now invested in with Jason, but I'm trying to also understand like a vertical or a market that, that is overall supported by a relatively big macro shift. So it's something relatively mm -hmm. nascent today that could become a mainstream category in, in the future, right? So 
when Headspace and, and Calm started, meditation wasn't as mainstream as it was today, even though it, you know, you, you might think it was always clear, but they were part of this, of this mission of making it mainstream. And I think they succeeded. And I think it was a positive mission for a lot of people that started meditating only with these apps. And so, so that's a lot what I think about is like, how do you, how do you figure out what are the categories that are not super competitive yet and that could become very big and meaningful in the next five to 10 years, which is my investment horizon. What do you think, and, and speaking of five to 10 years, this is, this is something, I, I feel like I completely miss this and I kick myself to this day. What, what do you think about the, the growing potential for, for business SaaS on mobile? So we've been talking more about like consumer subscriptions, but the very first app I launched on the app store was called TripCubby. And it was a mileage log that tracked your mileage for taxes and reimbursements. And I, you know, very like indie developer, it was a paid app for like four, four or five years. Eventually oh, I had a, like a free version and a paid version, the free version pushed to the paid version. And, and I just had that very indie mindset. There were a few times in there, like I thought about like trying to build something bigger. Well then, gosh, like five years in this, this other app comes in. And um, uh, gosh, I don't even remember the name, but I um, like you mile IQ. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Say, like so, one of the most successful, like <laughs> probably the only success story I could think of in this category. Right? Exactly. So you have this, like, so you have this company that comes along in that very consumer mobile space, but there's like a mobile use case for business. They're able to charge very high subscription rates. They probably have incredible retention. They got bought by Microsoft, yeah. So have you thought about and, and have you dabbled at all in this kind of and what do you think the future potential is even of this like kind of as as business as people use their their mobile devices more and more for business, which we already do. We're like on email and Slack and things on our phones. Um, so as business goes more and more like do you, are you investing in and thinking about these opportunities in like business mobile SaaS? Yeah. So I, I actually um while I was at Point Nine, I or we had a had a had a focus on on mobile SaaS as well, where we would invest in things that are used on mobile devices but sold um, via the enterprise playbook. So, like think of gardening services and so on, right? That that would use software um, and and wouldn't have a computer where they did their work. And mm. um, or not a company called Spotcheck, and that we then also invested in with Insight, which which is doing a mobile data collection software um, for for different um, distribution companies, and so. I, I definitely think that there is going to be more of this. And I, I kind of like, and I think about this a lot and I, I, I kind of see two dimensions that are interesting there at least. And, and one of them is, is pricing, as you said, right? Like is the real, is the real um, go-to-market here the same as, as for consumer? Probably not, right? So it's probably not just going to be a, a subscription on the app store, but there's going to be another approach. And what we've seen there is that, um, there is companies that reach scale with a consumer offering um, and then are able to, to develop a B2B offering on the backs of that, right? So they, they build up a brand and then they start doing enterprise contracts for as like perks or as, as a benefit for companies. And so they start actually doing multi-million dollar deals all of a sudden as an extension of the consumer line, right? So that's one, that's maybe not exactly what you were, what you were referring to, but I think it's getting blurry, right? Like the companies mm -hmm. get big and then they start doing enterprise contracts. And at the same time, I do think that especially now with, with you know, everything that's going on in the world and, and, and the acceleration of remote work and all of that, there's going to be more and more business software on mobile. And I think that 
like the way I think about it is like it, there has to be a different mode of distribution for that. So what I'm like I'm I'm for example one of the things that wouldn't surprise me is if we end up with a with a business app store or something that looks a little bit more like you know oriented around the business use case and the consumer use case. And that could be Apple themselves. It could be external, probably more Apple themselves. The way the work, world works today. But I do think we will see it. I do think that it makes a lot of sense. I think there's a lot of potential. I think because of the Apple's lock-in to the ecosystem, it's kind of on them to to roll it out in an efficient way. And I think we haven't seen that yet. Yeah, I mean, I think that when I think about this problem, David, that's my biggest open question. It's there's just so much friction with the buying process right now. Like you either have either it's like a provisioning problem about like, oh, like how do I sell a contract into a company that then becomes a mobile device, a mobile usage versus like the the sort of bottoms up path where somebody's bring your own device, right? Which is sort of like Mile IQ actually, yeah. right? It was probably a lot of people who just bought it as a personal expense to help them try. And, and these are also... Yeah. Also, I want to qualify when you say businesses, right? Because it's like it can be a business use case, but these are probably like sole proprietorships, like small, like, like independent people. And I think that's one of the areas where, yeah, like Nico, you were mentioning, is like the app store is really oriented around this like consumer, casual mm. lifestyle use case, right? Um, and it doesn't really support like how it's not easy to expend something as an in-app purchase. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. like and, and if we could figure out that problem, if we could crack that, and I think Apple could, yeah, I think there could be a big a big opportunity there for Apple to really like double down on this SMB upward yeah. motion. And, 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 but yeah, they, this is one of those cases where I think the, the, the particular constructs in Apple's total control is potentially like hindering the market. Right. In the sense that there's no, there should be a smooth continuum and it's not there. The, the one one thing I would like to add is what I see now, which is interesting, is even if companies start as consumer, um, oftentimes because of this trend that we're also seeing towards solo entrepreneurship and and kind of you know like your individual passion business or, or power seller business, a lot of the tools um, end up being used by prosumers and end up showing characteristics that look a lot closer to SaaS and to a consumer business. All right, so I, I just mm. did a, did an investment in a company that. Is in the photo space, and in 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 that case, we actually you know look very deeply at the cohorts, and you you have half of the business that's kind of you know consumers, and they're using it um, like you would probably use a Facetune, which is you know like every now and then, and then at one point they churn, and then the other half of the business is actually power sellers that that sell products on on Shopify or or one of the refurbished marketplaces, and 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 they see they see like double the engagement and double the retention for those users, right? So mm. I think that's an interesting trend that also goes into this you know consumer slash enterprise or or business use case where I think it's just getting a little more blurry and and it's not working the way it should on 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 the app store as as we've discussed, but there's certainly a lot of potential to to enable that more for both the enterprise and kind of the small business use cases. Yeah, this is something probably worth exploring for revenue can as well. Just like <laughs> yeah. Openly thinking about product stuff is like <laughs> how do we how do we skate ahead a little bit and help companies like do this because um, because I do think there's we've certainly talked to a lot. I've talked to a lot of people building apps that are so, that live on this like boundary, and I don't have good advice for them based yeah. on like just the way things are on the app store and like. And how easy it is to get caught up. Like we look at what happened with Hey, we look at what happened right. um, with uh, uh, there's some other recent examples of like apps just like falling a little bit afoul of the of the guidance, yeah. and and it's a huge distraction and stuff. And so, I think a lot of companies are just nervous about it in general. 
like I talked to a founder last year who I think I was trying to sell them on revenue cap, but they were like, they, they were like, no, nah, like we just don't want to do it just because we're afraid. Like they probably could have made money like going, you know, cause it's distribution, right? Like that's the upside. If you have a, if you have a B2B company that has a mobile presence, the only thing the app store is going to give to you is like a little bit of extra distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, they didn't just didn't think it was worth the risk, right? Of like bringing in, it's not even the 30%, right? It's mm-hmm. like, it's like bringing in the risk of compliance and getting rejected right. and other stuff. And, and then of course, all the like management, like yeah. Ed Wins, you have to deal with these multiple payment sources now. Recently, I did a deep dive on on Tinder, which was which was really fun, by the way, as a 41-year-old happily married man. Wait, you installed it? Tinder. Oh, yeah. I created a fake <laughs> account. I, I talked to my wife that, about it. I was going to say, that's, was one like, you hey, clear, that's one you want to clear up front, right? Like, <laughs> I yeah. was very clear. Um, but anyway, so I did a deep dive on Tinder. And, and what was really fascinating to me is how well that they're, how well they're executing on the tiered subscription. So they have two levels of mm. subscription. And then they have the in-app purchase where they have that kind of freemium game dynamic where people can spend as much as they want. So you're, what's especially fascinating, and I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of like the manipulative free-to-play games that, that like trap you into spending thousands and thousands of dollars. But what's cool about Tinder is that I, I do think there's a, a point where like the people who are super engaged are willing to pay more. Like Taylor Swift does this with her albums. Like she has like these you know, massive drops where it's like hundreds of dollars for all the special editions and all this kind of stuff and physical products. And, you know, artists are doing this more and more. So how do you, how do you think about that in the mobile consumer subscription space where like you have these like deep fans who are getting more value or willing to pay more, you have business use cases where they're probably willing to pay more. So, so like that photo investment you were talking about where like half of the users are like super engaged using it for business, they probably are willing to pay more than these consumer people. And then you have the layer on top of that, like, like how do you capture even more of, of that, 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 that true fans, like, right. I think so. It's a really interesting question and um, a very, I think, important one for the future of this business model. Because if you think about it, like on a high, on a high level, you basically have like a, a subset of the users that becomes really engaged and sticks with the product for a very long time. The better the product, the higher the, the that cohort. But it's still usually like you know, like maybe half. Like even for the the big streaming players, it's it's you know not even. 80, 90%, I think, over a year. And so, like, if you think about the, the average consumer subscription company that, let's say, you know, keeps like 30 plus percent of their users long term, you're basically pricing the product so that it's an average of those 30% of long term users and the 70% that churn out, right? And so, the, the price that you're charging at the end of the day is completely off for both verticals. Uh, for both mm-hmm. segment, segments, right? Like you have the segment that gets a lot more value out and sticks with it forever. You have the segment that maybe tries it for one year, maybe for a few months, maybe for like whatever time period and then turns off and doesn't get the value out of it or maybe only for a short time, right? And so at the end of the day, I think we're still at the very innings of really understanding how to price these things, right? And, and um, if you look at SaaS, like just the investing world where I came from, when Salesforce launched, it was a very simple one, one price per seat or user type of thing, right? And nowadays it's, you know, very complex and, and a lot of the value is actually driven by, by, by additional software that you then plug into your, your base. And so I think like 
I, there will be there will be a lot more price discrimination in the future where you extract more value out of the users that really get a lot of it out of your product and stick for a long time and probably you will make it cheaper or easier to actually come into the product and try it for a while right because you want to have the funnel big enough or or target well enough so that you get as many people in this core user group that sticks for a long time and then price it to to their willingness of pay and not to to the average user or the ones that churn out initially right so i always had this fantasy when i invest in these businesses of like okay can we maybe just ignore the 70% that are not really important for us yeah. and we understand the 30% and figure out how we can target more of those and find them and then you know build the business around those and that's hard but i think um will be key in the future I mean, it's it's it depends on your time horizons too, right? And cash flow yes. considerations, right? <laughs> right? You can ignore that seventy percent if you're not worried about the like payback periods on acquisition. Yeah. Like <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. And if you can make it for the long term, that you know you do get into those cohorts. I'm thinking in terms of like this revenue expansion, this like land and expand. And I have to admit, I can't think of off the top of my head a ton of consumer apps that have done yeah. it that I can name. That I mean, it sounds like Tinder has something yeah. set up, but they're very Tinder. sophisticated. Yeah, um, Tinder's killing it on that the xbox the xbox game pass subscriptions coming to mind they have like this like monthly you pay you get like 50 games and they keep like adding little upsells to it so it's yeah. like i don't know what the prices are but it's like ten dollars a month they'll be like hey do you want xbox game pass ultimate for an extra dollar right, right? Exactly. and so now you like get a little bit of extra and the and the benefit is like you are mostly you know if you wait till you have this like large until the majority of your revenue is coming from existing users right mm -hmm. or you built up that like long-term use case user base um you know if you can you know upsell to that base like that's a big expansion base right yes. which is the the salesforce argument so yeah. like yeah i wouldn't be surprised at, if we see more of that especially as it's going to be kind of an interesting dynamic to see like what is what becomes the bigger lever for these subscription companies and it looks like I mean, I don't know. Did at Calm, I imagine I've seen Calm move into like more web and more like meet. Like they've definitely like the app store doesn't seem like their focus, like it maybe used to be. Um, actually, I think they started on the web. I, I, it's possible they had a web version first because yeah. they were very. I mean, it was like 2011 or something when Alex started. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what developers start to focus on as these user bases get really big. Do they do they try to go down this like? expansion route or do we just you know do we just keep riding the wave of mobile options? yeah it's i mean we can talk about this very long but i'll just make a few last points on my side is one we do see this expansion like if you look at netflix for example and their pricing on average it increased like 10 15 percent over the last five years or so right and this is once just increasing the base prices too it's like hd family plan this and that right but they're starting to get more money out of the users and two, which is also important, like our willingness to pay for these things is increasing, right? Like the, if you look at a company, I don't know, like Calm, but also Blinkist, like they all started at like 20, 30 bucks a year. They're now charging 80, 90, right? And, and probably there is some room to grow. And um, the last thing there is like, it's not only about what do I pay for a subscription, but it's also what is the, like, as you mentioned with the Game Pass, like what, what, what can I put together here in terms of in-app purchases, subscriptions, maybe a commission or like affiliate fees or some other revenue streams, right? That all together form this bundle of um, extracting value, right? And so I've seen companies try very interesting things like first offer an in-app purchase and then from there give the engaged users a subscription, 
right? And vice versa, like mm. have a subscription, mm -hmm. but then, you know, once you hit a certain limit, you still have to add additional capacity to the product or, or, or unlock new features. And so I think that's all like, you know, I don't know, like I think we're very early. I think if you look into gaming and, and dating, they're usually the pioneers in this. Yeah. They're, you know, trying to really understand that from a data side, but then slowly it flows into the rest of the, of the subscription market. And I'm, I'm excited to see what, what people will come up with. It's usually the founders. I think most apps, this isn't something you should worry about, right? Like if you're talking, <laughs> if, you're, if you're thinking about building your first subscription app, just at a, at a one month trial on a yearly subscription and just yes, call it a day. Sure. Like, <laughs> don't overcomplicate it in the early days. Yeah. Right. But, yeah. but at some point you will hit like, you know, sort of, sort of some, some, some yes. like large problems of large numbers. And you'll have to think about these things, but it's a good problem. I think aspects of these problems are really important to think about though. And we were in a, in a, in another podcast, I don't know what order they're going to come out in, but we were talking about Veblen goods and like being able to price much higher and not see revenue decrease as you just keep increasing the price, increasing the price. And I think in some market segments, kind of to your earlier point, like the 30% of users who are going to be your longtime users are probably a lot, pr lot less price sensitive than a lot of the people who are just going to, yeah you know, cancel the free trial. And so if you're right. optimizing for free trial, if you're optimizing for that, that, that immediate return on ad spend, then your pricing is going to look really different. But if you're, right. a, if you are looking to the long run, you might be able to price a lot higher yeah. than you would originally, right. would, then exactly. you would think because you're actually pricing against those people who really find that deeper value out of it versus pricing against the, the kind of mass market that that's just going to drop anyways. A lot of competing things here, which is that though that if you, I mean, you, you mentioned it earlier, Nico, about if your price is too high or whatever, like you need to have those core users at some point, right? So yes. Like if you have this like insanely high product, you won't, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a downside to like fewer customers chart paying more. Right. It, yeah. Which is that at some point you lose data. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And I think like to your point, like, it, it really depends where you are in the journey, right? Like if you start, I always say launch super simple, right? Have a yearly plan, maybe have a monthly to anchor and just go and learn, right? But as you mature your business and as you get to a scale where, you know, you have real data and you have real resources to spend and steer the business, you want to understand these things, right? Because they can have a meaningful, meaningful impact on your business. You could throw your business 50% without changing anything but the pricing, that's that's the crazy thing, right? And in the beginning, it doesn't matter because you're learning and you're first finding product market fit and all these things. But I think you know it's it's interesting to to keep that in mind for when you're reaching the next level. Yeah. And speaking of pricing, I did want to, um, and this is not even our notes or anything, but um, yesterday we were talking on Twitter about price anchoring, and then again in a previous podcast, Jacob and I were talking about kind of the S curve of consumer adoption of being willing to to pay for subscriptions and how we're like so early in the S curve of yes. consumers starting to spend and shifting that spending from other consumer expenditures. So what I find interesting and in, just in this last week when Apple announced their Fitness Plus and their Apple One bundle, I kind of wonder if they're not resetting some pricing expectations by giving Fitness Plus for 10 bucks a month when you know, you in a very sophisticated opera, you know, offering by by Apple when Peloton is charging forty bucks a month for for their uh, if you have the device if you have the the bike and they're charging twenty bucks a month if you don't. 
And so like, I already was seeing some tweets about like, well, Peloton seems really expensive now at 20 bucks a month for the app experience when you can get Apple's very polished experience that, that you know, and, and they don't even have to worry about um, the, the realities that the rest of, of consumer subscription app companies have to think about and worry about. Like they can dump a billion dollars into it and let it fail and not have to deal with the same realities that the rest of the subscription app economy. So curious to, to know your thoughts um, and uh, about and and how how that could potentially impact kind of price expectations and and um, and the the future of this. I, I mean, it's obviously very hard to tell the future. And um, and Nika, that's what you get paid to do. Come on, <laughs> I see the future. Um, <laughs> No, I, I I don't think that Apple has proven so far that they, they've created these subscription bundles and really impacted the trajectory of other businesses. I, like, I don't think if that News Plus really has had any impact on New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and others, uh, at least not that I know. And, and so I, I don't, like the way I look at this is more as a kind of a way for Apple for Apple to increase their services revenue and to upsell users from iCloud. So basically price discrimination, what we just talked about, this is what in my eyes Apple is doing with their iCloud user base. Like how do we get them to actually pay more in, in high margin subscription revenues? And that for Apple makes a lot of sense. I think for indie developers that could of course be somewhat scary, but I think we have to see what comes out of the product, right? Like how good is it? How do people actually pick it up? And I, I do think that and, and I, don't, I really don't know. Like, I think, yes, for some people, then it, it sets the right, it sets different expectations. Um, but I think there's actually very few, at least from my understanding, apps that charge more than 10 bucks a month in this fitness space. So maybe it's like a one-to-one -one comparison. And the question becomes, can Apple actually build a better experience than, than a company like Peloton that's focused on it and has like this brand awareness and positioning and a whole bunch of smart people just working on this one problem? I don't know. Um, the, the bigger issue that I see or what, what really interests me here is like I, my, my big perspective or one of my beliefs is that in three years-ish, Apple will actually drive more profits from, from the services um, level of, of the P&L than from the products. Are they, are they not there already on like just margin contribution? No, the margin contribution is right now 40%. But like I, I expected, like I did a small analysis, like back of the envelope, and it's like if they keep growing roughly in this pace, like in three years, it'll be more than fifty percent of profits from services offering. And of course, services offering is you know their own services, iCloud and so on. But it's also the App Store. And mm -hmm. my belief, they don't say that, but I think we all would agree that App Store is probably the majority of that today, at least I think. And so the, the tension that I don't understand, or, or where I'm not sure if they have a, a proper strategy or what it is, is like, why do you want to piss off your developer ecosystem with yeah. news like that if it is becoming your biggest profit driver, right? And so, and, and then they're smarter than me, right? So I'm sure that they are thinking about this. And so the question becomes, like, what are they trying to, to do here? Is it to squeeze others to, to do then at the end of the day, potentially start M&A and implement some of these services into their own offering, right? Um, or is it, you know, they think, it doesn't really impact them, but it just upsells their own user base. Not sure, but it's that was the, the big question that I had afterwards. It's just like, huh, why why are they doing it, and and are they really just profit oriented here, or do they have a longer term strategy that I just don't understand yet? 
Yeah. Are they trying to sell phones? Or are they trying to sell fitness subscriptions? Right. Like I'm not sure I know anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and are they trying to build a platform that developers want to invest in? Or are they yes. trying to like just be the platform? Like, are yeah. they going to keep subsuming more and more categories? Like, the, you know, they bought Dark Sky earlier this year and I have a weather app. And so like it dawned on me during the event, it was like weather plus or whatever they're going to call it next year. Yeah is probably going to be part of a subscription bundle. They're probably going to offer, they, or maybe, I mean, we'll see. Right. They might, but they might offer kind of a more advanced right? weather experience. And so like, are they just going to go category by category? Like, are we going to see like a, a photo editing pro feature next right. year? That's like part of a subscription bundle. The good thing for us is Apple misses a lot. <laughs> like they have, yeah, they don't have a lot of like break. Even I would say like music. I don't know how big music has gotten compared to like Spotify, but like they haven't really just dominant. That's what I, that's what I think we would get, actually get scared is like, let's say fitness is just a like absolute Smash. amazing product. Yeah. And like, everybody's talking about it and it just like eats up the whole market. Like that would be, that would, that's when I would get concerned. Like, but like you're saying like news plus was kind of not a big deal. I have a feeling the same thing could be the case here, yeah, but I it's agree. scary, right? Like you just don't know, like they, and they have all these advantages on acquisition and distribution and pricing and all this stuff. That's just, you know, yeah. Like what, 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 what's the, they're making, I have to guess, like I have to agree with you that they're, they're making way more money off of us as a collective yeah. than they are going to make on any one of these probably exactly. maybe with the exception of music. Yeah, and the music is a good example, though, because they are closing in on Spotify. I don't remember the exact numbers, but they're closing in on Spotify because they're the, they're the default. But yeah. what, what's kind of scary to me and for, and really honestly frustrating as a, as a developer is that app, as Apple moves into these spaces, because they don't compete on the same dynamics, like when you're the platform default, like you, you win business on being the platform default over being good. So like all the product people... Yeah. I have heard from about Spotify versus Apple Music. Like I've never used Spotify. I probably should and just, you know, screw you, Apple. Like I'm not going to do your, but I, I subscribe to music because it was like, that's the platform Easy, thing. Yeah. It has all the integrations. It's easier. But all the product people I've heard say Spotify is just so much better. So much it better is. recommendations. Yeah. It's a better app. And so Apple's like actively creating a worse experience on their platform by not letting these innovative apps be like if Spotify was like the music app and had better integrations at a system level, that's better for consumers than Apple yeah. putting out this crappier product, but winning yeah. by being the default and then winning because they get to operate in a way that the third party developers on our platform don't like they don't operate in the same realities of user acquisition because they're the, they're the, they're, they're installed into the, the OS. They don't compete. Uh, with the same realities as far as paying the 30% if they're on the platform. So it's like they can be in the platform. It's their platform. This is what's going to get them. I have to swear. I, I swear this is like Epic is like, okay, yeah, you're wah. Like you're just playing by everybody yeah. else. I don't care. But if, yeah. but if Apple released like their own like Island battler and was competing, then, you know, like, which that's but not that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing with music, with news, with, then I would think Tim Sweeney's a little less whiny and like actually like has a good point, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Well, but see, and I, I mean, well, Apple Arcade, right? So like Apple is kind of going into that space a little bit. Also not a big hit, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. 
but again, it's like platform default. Now it's in the bundle. And like, so they're, they're, it's just, a, I mean, we don't, it, it's probably not super relevant. So we should probably <laughs> cap this discussion, but it's, <laughs> I mean, it's probably relevant for everybody, but it's just really hard to like yeah, solve, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, I, by, like I, and I don't know what is going to happen, but I think if they, like, let's assume the hypothetical of if they start really like just going into all the verticals that make sense, right? At one point, that will become anti-competitive. Well, it already is, though. It already is. So it's like, it'll just become more and more anti-competitive. I mean, they're anti-competitive against Spotify with their deep integrations in the, at a system level that Spotify can't do. They're, they're, Fitness Plus is already going to be anti-competitive against um, Peloton and other stuff because they have deeper integrations that they're not allowing. And again, even if they're not doing the deeper integrations, which, I mean, that's something I think that they just need to like internally be like, if we're going to Sherlock, we need to like be really clean about making sure we're not like doing all this, you know, at, at, at least only do one or two small things that are like mm. system level integrations that we don't give 30 part third party developers. But even if you take that away and if third party developers have everything else, it's, you know, what I was talking about, they don't compete on the same dynamics for user yeah. acquisition for yeah, paying the 30% everything It's already in a competitive. So like they don't have to keep moving into other spaces to be in a competitive. They already are. But I guess, yeah, no, I, you have a, you have a point. I think that's true. I think, I guess like if I think about it, I just, haven't like i guess it goes more towards jacob's point that i'm I, at today like the things that i that i invest in and that i've worked with they're just so much better in building the specific offering that they're bringing to the market that it, i'm just not so scared but yeah. but i might be wrong right and, and it might be that you know they get better and better but my like i always thought that if they at one point really want to become the platform that they will start buying like you know dark skies and like i think that it's going to be more like, okay, like at one point they realize, okay, all fitness, like if, if it's really the agenda to just drive more and more service revenues and not do that from the developer ecosystem, but own all of the margin, I, I, I would think that they at one point realize that they themselves are not the best at building it. So they should integrate the best and biggest ones and then offer that, right? But then that's something that like, again, bringing back the Salesforce example, that's been happening in a lot of um, enterprise SaaS ecosystems, right? Where there's both the app exchange, which is the app store with a lower cut, but then there's also a lot of businesses built on the backs of, of Salesforce on the post.com platform and so on that at the end of the day have been bought by, by Salesforce and integrated in their product offering, right? And so, and it's a really large company. And, you know, if you support the ecosystem, you buy some of the company, like then you're not really, I think that you position yourself as a, as a more benevolent dictator, <laughs> Than, than if you do any of the other things, you know? Apple does not position itself with developers anyways as a benevolent dictator. I think, I think we hit on a particularly hot nerve. For David. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, yeah. It's emotional. Yeah, we'll move on, we'll move on. That's fair. So we, we, we kind of have touched on this a few times, but I am curious to, to hear your thoughts on like where the consumer spend on mobile subscriptions is going to come from. So... You know, early on, there was kind of a lot of complaints of, you know, developers moving subscriptions and subscription fatigue, I think is maybe an interesting kind of angle to take on this. It's like, at at what point, you know, are consumers, do consumers have subscription fatigue? How do you think about subscription fatigue? And how do you think about like where this, the increase in mobile spending is going to come from in the consumer budget? Yeah. So I I think there's two big um, shifts happening 
that are, or I guess maybe three even, that are supporting this, this shift in spend. And, and one of them is that the younger generations are just much more willing to pay for these digital goods than our parents were. And so I think like just by the nature of that, the, the, the percentage of disposable income that is being shifted from physical goods and services to digital will increase by magnitude because we just, and, and our kids and, and the younger generation just place a lot more value on digital goods and also see the value and the willingness to pay is just increasing, right? So I think that's that's one thing that that just naturally with time will shift a lot of spend. The second is right now and with the pandemic, which obviously has a lot of you know horrible consequences, but for our specific industry has been a boost really because people spend less on travel, on gastronomy and on whatever new clothes to go out and see their friends because they're at home and they're looking at their phone. Yeah. And and so, you know, and, and that's something that naturally, you know, allows them to, to spend more of their disposable income on on entertainment or, or utilities or, or, or games on, on the phone. And then, yeah, I think that those were the, the big two. The third one would be a mix of, of both. But I, I just, I think we're just like, if you think back, like that's what we always have to keep in mind is when, when the App Store launched in 2008, everything was free, right? There was something that were 99 cents. And then let's take an, an example of Sleep Cycle as, as a company, right? It first came out, it cost 99 cents. You can measure your Sleep Cycle. Sleep Now is a big thing and they launched subscriptions and they're doing significant revenue, very profitable as a company, right? It, was, it used to be a company that would make 99 cents per download. Now per active user, they're making you know, hundreds of, of bucks if they stick with it for a long time. What has changed? The app, sure, they improved the app, but you know, at the end of the day, it's doing the same thing. It's really the willingness to pay for it and, and the business model that has actually been able to extract value from the users for what they're doing. And so we're still, you know, like a subscription was launched in 2011. It's 2020. It's nine years. That's a very short time, right? And so if you look back, like as an example, I think that's a really interesting data point. That was just um, Jason Lampkin just had his disaster 2020 and one of the you know big talking points was we now hit a, a public cloud of a trillion dollars. When you look back like 10 years ago, so it was 50 million, you know, like mm. from 50 million to a trillion. Now everybody talks about SaaS. It's a hot thing. Everybody invests in it or wants to found a company. That all happened within the span of 10 years, right? And, and you know, the first SaaS companies, Insight started in the 90s to focus on SaaS investing, right? Like started, you know, maybe like 15, 20 years earlier. Right. And so we're now at a point where you have a crazy high penetration. You have a business model that works. You have the willingness to pay. You have the, the younger generation growing up with the, with the experience that, you know, it's okay to pay for, for digital goods. I think that's just a great, like I could see, and this is obviously the bull case that I tell my investors and who knows if it will happen or not, but I, I could see a world in which this non-gaming in-app mobile-first subscription um, business becomes a trillion-dollar opportunity in 10 years, right? That we, we certainly have the momentum right now, um, and it's going to be interesting. And I think that's further, I'm belaboring the point maybe, but it's further supported by us getting increasingly aware of the consequences of advertising and what the business models of having to drive engagement versus actually aligned, being aligned with driving value for the user means for us as, as consumers, right? Whether it's increasing anxiety, depression, manipulation, whatever it is, right? And I think that's something that, that subscriptions can potentially also solve. So I think a lot of the spend will also come from 
you not being a free user of software that sells you as ad inventory, mm -hmm. but you saying, I don't want that. I want to have something that's more aligned with my own interests and paying for it um, out of your pocket. You know, a light bulb like really went off when you were saying that uh, early in, in that part of the conversation that, again, on another podcast, Jacob and I were talking with the founder of a fitness app and talking about how like you have a, a price comparison where like, you know, gym membership is 60 bucks a month and then a, a training session is $60 an hour. And then this fantastic machine learning driven fitness app that's going to help you optimize your workout is 60 bucks a year. And so like the, mm. the adding the value that you can add with that digital product, even to that real life experience it is, is huge. And people are starting to like see that value and like make those price comparisons. And so like when you're talking about like, um, you know, not buying that next outfit or not going to dinner that one time, it's like, you know, one fancy dinner is, you know, a hundred bucks. Yeah. Well, are you going to then potentially like subscribe to that foodie app for a hundred bucks a year that like enhances that experience or like an outfit, you know, go buy that next, you know, hundred dollar dress, or are you going to subscribe a hundred dollars a year to a, a photo app that you're taking photos of your fashion and sharing them socially or whatever, and then travel, like, you know, you're going to spend thousands and thousands yeah. and thousands of dollars on travel. Is there uh, flighty is a great example of this. Like it's a fantastic flight management app for 60 bucks a year. And so yeah. like for, for a 10th of what you're going to spend on an exactly. international flight, you enhance that experience of the flight because you have that real time information and push notifications right. and like, yeah. you know, where you're going and can track all of that. So yeah, the light bulb really went off for me just now of, of how these digital services for consumers are, are enhancing these real life experiences and adding value. And I think consumers are going to see, see how valuable those are more and more. And then what's yeah. incredible is it's a subscription monetization aligns developers with delivering the kind of value that is worth paying a subscription for. Yeah. Like, you know, like what we saw early on with the 99 cent apps is like, you, you know, it was iBeer, you know, you, you drink the little mm -hmm. beer and you make a little mm -hmm. gag and like, it's a great that's, app. that's worth 99 cents. <laughs> I paid and for that's it. Pioneer. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest. In 2000, that was like the best thing in 2009. Come on. For a buck, no, right? Or, or for yeah. four bucks, right? It's like yeah. a price of a cup of coffee. But like now we're at a point where like the sophistication of apps and the value that yeah. they can deliver is so high. And then the subscription model unlocks the monetization that helps that make yes. sense. Exactly. And we're going to just see more and more great apps built on top of enhancing real life experiences, creating new digital experiences. Yeah. Gosh, I'm even more of a bull. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I'm I'm jazzed right now. Yeah. You, get, I mean, you guys should do a company in this space. Yeah, I think I'm thinking of founding something. Yeah, I, I think I think it's a really good way of framing it, and I, I think you know time kind of works in our favor here because, and one this generational shift, two this willingness to pay that comes along with it, and three also the the quality of the technology itself, right? Like what we can do with an app, or also this is also interesting with a combination with an app and a physical product right. like, you know, Peloton, Aura, and Aura, there's yeah. other companies that, yeah, exactly. Like it's just, there's, it'll get better and better. The, the product experience will get better. We will have more service layers, digital service layers also overlaid 
over like physical products that just en enhance the experience, as you said, not just for a real life experience like travel or, or vacation, but also for you know wearing a ring or you know having having a, this this bike at home to to work out. And so I think we're at the beginning, and I think it's just going to be more and more of our disposable income. And you know, certainly at one point people will have too much of it, and and maybe that's why people are trying to bundle it, right? So the question is like, yeah. what's the most efficient way of actually distributing it at one point? But we'll learn, we'll see. Yeah, I, I'm even excited about the niches that you can't predict, right? That's I think one right. of my most exciting aspects of this whole market is that I think it's gonna it, it drives a really good way for innovation to reach markets and niches that never would have been funded or 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 built yes. software for before. And I think that's and I, I don't know how many of them are billion dollar businesses, probably not a ton, but they, they don't need to be, right? And, and we're still driving a ton of value for consumers and improving the world. So. Yeah. And for the entrepreneurs, right? Like, and to Apple's credit, like that's like with a very small team today, which I love about these companies also is it's oftentimes like, you know, two, three, four, five founders or, or employees and founders that are building a company that's driving millions of revenue if they, if they work on the right thing, right? And they get the distribution just by plugging into the app store. And as much as we hate Apple for some of the developer um, policies, they have built that billion plus user base. Right internationally that you could just plug into and you monetize from day one. Now you have the business model. You don't have a business model risk anymore because you just charge a subscription and you are an independent entrepreneur with two people that can build a very, very healthy cash flow business and maybe a very big um, VC funded business. And if so, then speak to me, of course. But like, <laughs> but, like it's, it's amazing like what it does for, for, for entrepreneurship, I think. Well, this is a, I think this is a great place to wrap up. The, the excitement, go out and build those niches, go out and, and uh, build these businesses and improve. And then, and then email Nico at Nico.com actually, or whatever, <laughs> your pitch. Yeah, so, so actually, I mean, are you, are you, you know, a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast, you know, we, we probably are going to have quite a few people who already have successful subscription app businesses, but yeah. um, that are already funded, but, but there's probably going to be a lot listening who are aspiring, who have decent uh, uh, unique economics, but aren't haven't invested, haven't like built out user acquisition. So are yeah. you are you accepting pitches? How do people? Uh, <laughs> no, of course. No, how do I'm, how I'm, do I'm, Nico club? Combinator put your application in? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what's and then what's the best way to reach out to you and and uh, follow you on Twitter and that sort of thing? Yeah, exactly. I'm so I'm um, first of all always looking for new investments. I, I love working with entrepreneurs and especially at the early stages. And and my hope. And, you know, to align the expectations is that we build a business together that becomes very meaningful, right? So I, I do want to be an investor in the comms and the revolutes of the next generation. And hopefully there'll be, you know, even bigger successes, even though those stories are still you know, being written. But I, I think the best way to reach out to me is just shoot an email. My email is on my website at jason.com. It's also very easy to guess. And, <laughs> and you can also find me on Twitter and with my real name and at Jason. And, and I'm always happy to talk. I think just important, you, you know, you, you, you will want to build something meaningful, not a lifestyle business, which is completely fine, but it's just not my business, right? And it should be something that is somewhat uniquely positioned in, in its category and has the potential to reach that, that scale and also, you know, the founder's willingness to do so. But I'm always, always happy to chat. I, I like to learn about the space. I learn most of all from talking to entrepreneurs and people like you guys that are very close in the ecosystem. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not hard to reach. Well, this was fascinating. We'll have to have you back on um, 
And and I mean, we we only gosh got not even halfway through our notes. So uh, <laughs> this was a, this is fun, and we'll we'll have you back on sometime. Yeah, it sounds good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.